Preface of The Castle of Otranto. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Castle of Otranto by Horace Walpole. Preface The following work was found in the library of an ancient Catholic family in the north of England. It was printed at Naples in the black letter in the year 1529. How much sooner it was written does not appear. The principal incidents are such as were believed in the darkest ages of Christianity, but the language and conduct have nothing that savors of barbarism. The style is the purest Italian. If the story was written near the time when it is supposed to have happened, it must have been between 1095, the era of the First Crusade, and 1243, the date of the last, or not long afterwards. There is no other circumstance in the work that can lead us to guess at the period in which the scene is laid. The names of the actors are evidently fictitious, and probably disguised on purpose. Yet the Spanish names of the domestics seem to indicate that this work was not composed until the establishment of the Aragonian kings in Naples had made the Spanish appellations familiar in that country. The beauty of the dictation and the zeal of the author, moderated, however, by singular judgment, concur to make me think that the date of the composition was little antecedent to that of the impression. Letters were then in their most flourishing state in Italy, and contributed to dispel the empire of superstition, at that time so forcibly attacked by the reformers. It is not unlikely that an artful priest might endeavor to turn their own arms on the innovators, and might avail himself of his abilities as an author to confirm the populace in their ancient errors and superstitions. If this was his view, he has certainly acted with signal address. Such a work as the following would enslave a hundred vulgar minds beyond half the books of controversy that have been written from the days of Luther to the present hour. This solution of the author's motives is, however, offered as a mere conjecture. Whatever his views were, or whatever effects the execution of them might have, his work can only be laid before the public at present as a matter of entertainment. Even as such, some apology for it is necessary. Miracles, visions, necromancy, dreams, and other preternatural events are exploded now even from romances. That was not the case when our author wrote, much less when the story itself is supposed to have happened. Belief in every kind of prodigy was so established in those dark ages that an author would not be faithful to the manners of the times who should omit all mention of them. He is not bound to believe them himself, but he must represent his actors as believing them. If this error of the miraculous is excused, the reader will find nothing else unworthy of his perusal. Allow the possibility of the facts, and all the actors comport themselves as persons would do in their situation. There is no bombast, no similes, flowers, digressions, or unnecessary descriptions. Everything tends directly to the catastrophe. Never is the reader's attention relaxed, 
The rules of the drama are almost observed throughout the conduct of the piece. The characters are well drawn and still better maintained. Terror, the author's principal engine, prevents the story from ever languishing, and it is so often contrasted by pity that the mind is kept up in a constant vicissitude of interesting passions. Some persons may perhaps think the characters of the domestics too little serious for the general cast of the story. But besides their opposition to the principal personages, the art of the author is very observable in his conduct of the subalterns. They discover many passages essential to the story, which could not be well brought to light but by their naivete and simplicity. In particular, the womanish terror and foibles of Bianca in the last chapter conduce essentially towards advancing the catastrophe. It is natural for a translator to be prejudiced in favor of his adopted work. More impartial readers may not be so much struck with the beauties of the piece as I was. Yet I am not blind to my author's defects. I could wish he had grounded his plan on a more useful moral than this, that the sins of the father are visited on their children to the third and fourth generation. I doubt whether, in his time, any more than at present, ambition curbed its appetite of dominion from the dread of so remote a punishment. And yet this moral is weakened by that less direct insinuation, that even such anathema may be diverted by devotion to St. Nicholas. Here the interest of the monk plainly gets the better of the judgment of the author. However, with all its faults, I have no doubt but the English reader will be pleased with the sight of this performance. The piety that reigns throughout, the lessons of virtue that are inculcated, and the rigid purity of the sentiments, exempt this work from the censure to which romances are but too liable. Should it meet with the success I hope for, I may be encouraged to reprint the original Italian, though it will tend to depreciate my own labor. Our language falls far short of the charms of the Italian, both for variety and harmony. The latter is particularly excellent for simple narrative. It is difficult in English to relate without falling too low or rising too high, a fault obviously occasioned by the little care taken to speak pure language in common conversation. Every Italian or Frenchman of any rank piques himself on speaking his own tongue correctly and with choice. I cannot flatter myself with having done justice to my author in this respect. His style is as elegant as his conduct of the passions is masterly. It is a pity that he did not apply his talents to what they were evidently proper for, the theater. I will detain the reader no longer, but to make one short remark. Though the machinery is invention and the names of the actors imaginary, I cannot but believe that the groundwork of this story is founded on truth. The scene is undoubtedly laid in some real castle. The author seems frequently, without design, to describe particular parts. The chamber, he says, on the right hand, the door on the left hand, the distance from the chapel to Conrad's apartment. These and other passages are strong presumptions that the author had some certain building in his eye. Curious persons who have leisure to employ in such researches may possibly discover in the Italian writers the foundations on which our author has built. 
if a catastrophe at all resembling that which he describes is believed to have given rise to this work it will contribute to the interest of the reader and will make the castle of otranto a still more moving story sonnet to the right honourable lady mary cook the gentle maid whose hapless tale these melancholy pages speak say gracious lady shall she fail to draw the tear adown thy cheek no never was thy pitying breast insensible to human woes tender though firm it melts distressed for weakness it never knows oh guard the marvels i relate of fell ambition scourged by fate from reason's peevish blame blessed with thy smile my dauntless sail i dare expand to fancy's gale for sure thy smiles are fame h w end of preface